Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the seventh series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the new elite, the meaning of God, the coming economic crash, the transformation of the earth, the mind of humans and aliens, food in hard times, what it means to be a philosopher, the end of the world. And in a special live recording in London in November, we'll be looking at the coming age of the machine. Our relationship with food is, how shall we say, unhealthy. On the one hand, nearly two-thirds of English adults and a third of children struggle with obesity or extra weight problems. On the other, there are currently around 2,500 food banks operating in the UK. The food on our table accumulates millions of food miles a year, having arrived here from Spain or Argentina or Kenya, in the process consuming oil and emitting carbon dioxide like it was going out of fashion, which sadly it isn't. But at the same time, we are regularly told that British agriculture is in crisis, and that's before we even start on Brexit. There is almost nothing more fundamental to our being human than what, how, where and with whom we eat. And those questions attain a particular clarity in hard times when people are insecure, poor and hungry. So who is responsible for feeding us? How? And, as we like to ask in reading our times, what does this tell us about our humanity? Penn Vogler is a food historian and the author of the widely acclaimed book Scoff, about food and class. Her latest book is entitled Stuffed, a history of good food and hard times in Britain, and she joins us this week on the podcast. Penn, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you so much. It's so nice to have a conversation with you. Now, the book is framed around the question of who has responsibility to make sure that we are well-fed in hard times. But as a way of answering that, it encompasses centuries of our relationship with food in Britain. And one of the most seminal moments in that history is the enclosures and the loss of the commons. Tell us what the commons were and how important they were to feeding ourselves. Yes, definitely. I'll just start where you started with that idea of responsibility. It's a question we ask ourselves every day without really thinking about it. Who is responsible for making dinner? Who's responsible for making sure the kids get fed? Who's responsible for making sure kids don't eat too much? And then it echoes out into who's responsible for getting food into our supermarkets, for growing it in the first place. The enclosures of the commons were the most massive shift in answering that question. The enclosures started around 1604. That was the first kind of formal enclosure act. They went on for 400 years. And in that time, areas of land that was common to people, and that doesn't necessarily mean it was owned in common. It wasn't owned by you and me. It was probably owned by big landowners like the church, like the manors. But there were time immemorial practices that people had the right to use those commons for sort of everyday sustenance. They could graze their sheep, their cattle, their geese on the commons. They could let pigs rootle around in woodland. They could collect honey. They could collect wood. 
But it came with a very old way of agriculture, which was not very efficient in some ways. And it goes back to what lots of people probably learned in primary school about medieval strip farming. So people have little strips of land all dotted around that they farm. And it's not very efficient. You don't get economies of scale. And so what the enclosures did was to say, right, we're going to put a fence or a hedge or a ditch around this land Sorry, you people, it means you can't use it any longer for your own sustenance, but we're going to make it more viable economically, usually by turning it from grain and crop growing to cows, particularly, and sheep. And so it was a real massive difference in the way that land was viewed. There's a famous essay, which is about 50 or so years old, setting out the tragedy of the commons, which puts forward the view that very often commons suffer from overgrazing, overuse, because if there isn't one single person who owns it, everybody wants a portion of it, and therefore everybody overuses it. Was it the case that the commons areas in Britain that helped feed us in these times weren't overused? Did we manage the commons properly back then? It depends who you are and who you ask. You're right, there's this very famous essay by Garrett Harding. And it's really interesting that he talks about the tragedy of the commons and we think about it in terms of common land. He's actually talking about parking in New York City, bizarrely. (laughs) But the concept is the same. And yes, it was the argument that people used at the time to do the enclosures. It would make this land much more productive. And this idea that the land was overused because so many people had the rights to do it. And yes, to a degree, that was probably true. But the rights were not just a free-for-all. It was balanced by rights immemorial. So a farmer or a cottager or somebody who had a freehold or a big house would have more rights that went with that place. So actually... A lot of common lands were fairly apportioned. And actually, that didn't suit everybody. Gerard Wynne Stanley, as a digger, said that that was very unfair because it meant a lot of people weren't given the rights to graze. And the greedy farmers had kind of grazed their six cattle, whereas other people didn't have the rights to graze two or one. So it was definitely not a perfect situation. Yes, so there is inequity built into it. Yes, there is a degree of inequity built into it, but there's also a degree of equity built into it because it probably means that nearly everybody has some rights. And that was the big change. And compared to the system that follows it, in which a lot of people are simply disenfranchised from the land, that was a far less equitable system, wasn't it? It meant that a whole system of domestic economy was just shattered, could be shattered in weeks And I suppose an equivalent might be today with somebody as of saying, I'm really sorry, but we're just not going to have social security any longer. You know, Mm. it might appear to make the whole nation wealthier. Mm. You know, it's a lot of more money to spend on something else. But for those people, it would be a lot of people. It would be devastating. And of course, it starts to feed into the Industrial Revolution. It means that a lot of people thrown off the land or can't make their living on the land. And so they go to the cities and then new industries start to employ them. That was exactly what I was going to go on to ask. So you make the point that enclosures begin at the beginning of the 17th century, but I understand they accelerate in the 18th century. Are they one of the things that really catalyse urbanisation? Are they one of the things that kind of feed into the Industrial Revolution, the fact that more and more people fundamentally are unable to feed themselves in the countryside anymore? 
that was certainly the perspective of the day in the early 18th century before we were so aware that cities would begin to really industrialise. It was seen as a good thing because it would mean people were not self-sufficient and therefore they were hungry for cheap jobs. First of all, on the land. So it suited some landowners and some farmers to have people who were not self-sufficient, not able to look after themselves, because they would then go and work for very low wages. And then that concept moves from the rural and agricultural economy to the urban economy as the urban economy kind of keeps going. And I think it's recognised by most people at the time that the two things are completely indivisible. Yes. Now, the other major shift when it comes to our attitude to feeding ourselves and agriculture more broadly around this time is what is known as the agricultural revolution, which perhaps isn't as famous as the industrial revolution, but nonetheless has a very significant impact. Tell us what that was and how it changed our responsibility for feeding ourselves. Yes, it's quite a controversial term in social history, this idea of an agricultural revolution, because all these revolutions are not over weeks, you know, they're over months, years, decades. But there's a particular moment in agriculture, and it goes along with the enclosures. It's very much two sides of one coin. There's this notion that the population of the country is growing very fast and that we don't have enough land to feed ourselves. And so there's this notion that you have to find more and more wasteland, as they called it, and make it productive. And one of the ways that people decided to make it productive it was by keeping more animals because livestock gave a better return on your money. And one of the ways of doing that was by growing more crops, such as turnips, uh, which mm. I talk about quite a lot in the book, yes. <laughs> not for people to eat, but for sheep and cows. And that still goes on today. I had a really interesting conversation yesterday with a farmer. And he said, yeah, yeah, we grow loads of turnips. And I said, well, what happens to them? He said, oh, we give them to the sheep. There's an interesting parallel there, isn't there, between turning over agricultural land to grow turnips to feed animals in the 18th century and the modern challenge there is in many parts of the world of turning over agricultural land to grow biofuel crops to feed the vehicles of the rich, developed world. There is a real comparison, yes. I mean, I think the slight difference for us, if we're just talking about Britain, is that that turnips on our own land is something that we have to kind of get to grips with ourselves, whereas we have a tendency to outsource those problems of biofuel crops and monoculture to much weaker, much less developed economies. Um, so yeah. yes, there is a parallel. It just seems to be totally the wrong way round. Yeah, and to poorer farmers who, frankly, if they're given the option of growing biofuels and earning twice as much as they can by growing crops with their own people, they're only going to go one way, aren't they? They're only going to go one way. And this is where this whole question that you began with about responsibility comes in, because the individual is going to act in their self-interest and their family's interest, you know, and their kids' interest. Yes. And so that's when those questions about responsibility come in because somebody has to take responsibility for the interests of a kind of wider community yes. on the planet. Yes. So by the early years of the, of the 19th century, there is a strong emphasis on making agriculture more efficient. Then more and more land has been enclosed and Britain is becoming the first seriously industrial and the first seriously urban nation. But it's important to emphasise, and this comes out in, in the book, that that doesn't mean that 
that responsibility for feeding ourselves at a small scale has been eclipsed. You talk about the movement to give people allotments Mm. And also you talk about the cooperative movement, Mm. which began in the hungry 40s, as it Mm. was known. Mm. Tell us about Mm. those and and how that feeds into our wider conversation about the responsibility of feeding ourselves. So the allotments come out of the enclosures. It was recognised from very early on, from Elizabethan times onwards, that if you're going to take people's rights of common away, then maybe you have a responsibility to replace it with something else. And so cottagers who lost access to the commons might be given a bit of a plot to grow an allotment. And when the enclosures speed up in the 18th century and the kind of maximum height is from about 1770 to about the 1800, landowners particularly start to say, we've got to give people some kind of recompense. And that tended to be in the form of allotments. But they were very specifically designed. And the same is true of crofts in Scotland. They're very specifically designed to not enable people to be self-sufficient. They cannot be big enough for farmers and farmers' families to be self-sufficient because then if they are, they don't enter the cash economy. And that's very much the, the pattern that you get in Scotland around the clearances. The point of the clearances is to make that land work for those landowners with sheep, push everybody else to the margins, make them enter the cash economy through fishing, mostly, even if they're not fishermen, yeah. and then give them a croft, which is specifically designed to be big enough to give them a bit of food, but not enough for all of them. That's really interesting. The idea that allotments are peripheral really they're not enough to sustain people and they're almost like throwing people across but as you say corralling them into the cash economy into the market economy yes exactly and then people use their allotments to grow the most amount of food that they can from a small amount and they become actually potato patches for a lot of people because that's the the easiest thing to grow but people love their allotments it's not just about being self-sufficient it's about the joys and the virtues of growing your own food and having some and sociability as well and and sociability and being outside and all the rest of it and all those kind of really important things yeah At the time, they weren't particularly seen in those terms. They were seen in moral terms, but more in moral terms of making men, you know, keeping them out of the pubs and stopping them smoking and drinking. And and giving them something constructive to do at the weekends if they have (laughs) any weekend free time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the cooperative movement, which is another kind of resistance to the marketisation. Tell us what that was about. The cooperative movement is completely fascinating. It grows very much out of the deracination of people being picked up out of their country lives, going to the cities. And right from the early 19th century, there have been attempts to make the cooperative movement work because people feel that they don't have control over any part of their lives. You know, people can't vote. They don't have much say in kind of how their lives are led and they don't have much say in the kind of food that they get. And Initially, in industrial communities, often people would be paid partly in tokens which had to be spent in the shop that belonged to the factory. And so they didn't have any control over how much that cost and and what the quality of stuff they were getting. There were loads of attempts for people to take control, to have a cooperative. They never quite work until in the 1840s in Lancashire, some workers get together and they set up what becomes the cooperative movement that we are familiar with today. And the thing that probably makes it work for them is that they don't accept credit. They say, you've got to pay us in cash because they know that a lot of their customers 
will want to pay with credit, but they also know that they themselves, they were very sort of humane people by the sounds of it, wouldn't want to chase people for debt. It's got to be in cash. So they never ran into the problems of cash flow that other Mm -hmm. cooperatives had. And they also knew that women had to be involved, that women were the people who went out and shopped and bought the food and cooked it, and that they had to be allowed to be members of the cooperative, which wasn't always the case with other ones. People had to literally buy into it. It's a few shillings, pence, whatever it was, but also kind of ethically buy into it. And Mm -hmm. they did. And it was an enormously successful movement for a very long time. And it went right into the 20th century, didn't it? What was really extraordinary to me was in the middle of the Second World War, if you were rationed, well, everybody was rationed in the Second World War, you had to be registered with your local shop. And something like nine-tenths of people registered with their local co-op. You know, it was just part of people's lives and it was trusted. And from the Second World War, all sorts of things have happened to our food. A co-op couldn't keep up with supermarkets, essentially. But it's still going in its own way. Yes, we have several where I live. So we've talked about our own responsibility to feed ourselves. We've talked about this cooperative mechanism of feeding ourselves. Let's talk a bit about the role of the state in feeding ourselves. Now, this comes across, at least at first, as a quintessentially modern phenomenon. But as you point out in the book, it has a rather ancient pedigree. I was struck by the fact that the longest running piece of food and drink legislation in the country is the Assize of Bread and Ale, which I confess I didn't know about beforehand, which was passed in the 13th century as a good example of the government being concerned that its people don't starve because governments need stability and a hungry population isn't a stable one. So what role, it's a huge question, I know, but what role has the state played over the years in making sure we're fed? It's a huge question. And you have to think about what is the state as well, because areas of authority were much broader in the 13th century. You know, the church, the manor, the aristocracy and the government all had a role in how people were looked after. But yes, this emerging state does recognise that it's like the bread and circuses thing. You have to keep people from rioting because they did riot when they got hungry or angry. Mm. And one of the ways they did that with the sizes of bread and ale, this legislation that says no matter what the price of grain, bread will always cost one penny. One little brown loaf of bread will always cost one penny. And I used to wonder why you got in, I don't know, Smollett a penny loaf and Dickens a penny loaf with centuries apart you'd still have a penny loaf in spite of inflation. And that's why. The size of your bread changes, but the amount doesn't. Presumably the loaf shrinks over the centuries then, does it? It Because of the steady inflation. Yes, Yes, it probably becomes a sort of bread roll, but then grows again when you have a good harvest and corn gets cheaper. But the interesting thing about that is that the emphasis on keeping the peace then moves from the government and the landowners and the people growing the corn to the bakers and the millers. And we start to get this sense that the people who are concerned with feeding us are our neighbours and the people we can see. And I think we still have that sense that it's the supermarkets, for example, on our high streets, whose job it is to feed us. And we don't feel very comfortable that the government should have a role. We just want the government to keep out of it as much as possible. I do want to come on to supermarkets. Before we leave the state, I think it's worth drawing out one of the points you make very clearly in the book. 
whatever role the state has in making sure that we're fed, whether it's direct or mediated, it has played a significant role in the long-standing problem of food adulteration and making sure that the food we eat is, well, bluntly, isn't going to kill us. And that was particularly an issue in the 19th century, wasn't it? Yes, yes, exactly. So the moments that the state wakes up and realises it has to take some kind of action is when it appears that either there's a security issue because we're at war or people are so badly fed they can't fight, which was the case in the Second World War. It's the case after the Boer War and the government goes, oh, actually, maybe we should be feeding children because otherwise they're going to grow up to have dental caries and rickets and not be able to look after us. And then the other thing that gets the state involved is when there's a bigger threat to our national health. And that was very much the case in the adulteration crisis. So if you lived in a city in London or Manchester or Birmingham in the 19th century, it would be very hard, particularly if you're poor, to get food that was not adulterated quite badly. And that means like plaster of Paris or aluminium salts in bread. It means copper to make your pickles look lovely and bright and green, you know, even though they're not naturally that colour. And this is adulteration to bulk stuff out and to make it look nicer, effectively. It's exactly what it is. It's to bulk it out and to make it look what you'd expect, like (laughs) kind of bright red, red Leicester cheese, you know, which isn't kind of particularly natural, for example, and um, orange smoked fish that also isn't particularly natural, but we kind of expect it to look that way these days. And so, yeah, and what happens is that one business starts to compete by lowering its prices through adulteration. All the other businesses feel that they have to keep up with them. And so it becomes almost impossible to buy, for example, vinegar that isn't adulterated literally with water and sulfuric acid to give it that nice tang, you know. I mean, really, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so through a series of movements by by medics, by chemists, by the Lancet, the doctor's journal, and then the middle classes get very angry. The Times amplifies what's going on in the Lancet. The Times starts to enjoy this campaign. And eventually there's this kind of groundswell of anger about what we are being made to eat. And the government starts to take some legislative action. And it takes a long time. It takes 20 years or so for it to filter through. But eventually, it brings in adulteration acts that work. Mm. And, of course, a lot of people hearing that think it's very similar to the situation we're in today with ultra-processed food, where food processors feel that they've got to make cheap food, process the life out of it, put in all kinds of added extras that we don't know what they do to our health, make lots of cheap food because that's what you need commercially. Yep. And so that's the situation I think we're in. At the moment, we're eating food that is adulterated in some ways, although legally adulterated, and no one body has the ability to change that. And so that's probably why we need some kind of government legislation to come in that is a fascinating comparison there. And as you say, you know, our food isn't being adulterated with sulfuric acid today, but it is ultra-processed legally. And there is a market tilt in that direction because if your competitors are able to sell stuff cheaper than you are, you've basically got to keep up with them. And that breeds a certain distrust with the idea that these commercial enterprises are in any way seriously responsible for feeding us. And you point out in the book that half our food today, roughly speaking, comes from or at least through supermarkets. So they're clearly massively in the equation of who has responsibility for feeding us. And yet... 
there's a palpable sense that we're not being fed the healthier stuff through supermarkets. In any case, supermarkets are fundamentally there to make profits for their shareholders rather than necessarily serve the public good. So there's a bit of a problem there, isn't there? Yes. Even since I started writing this book, I started this writing this book quite depressed about our food problems. And also I was depressed about the idea that it wasn't even possible to say, look, this is wrong because people would start jumping up and saying, no, 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 it's in people's choice. It's about individual choice. You can't take away the choice of the individual to go to the supermarket and buy the cheapest food for themselves and their family. You can't get involved. That is wrong. But even in the last few years, a lot of doctors, a lot of medics, a lot of scientists have started to do work and publish work that explains exactly what is happening and to call for a bit more government intervention and commercial responsibility. I think this is where you go back to what can we do? There's a fascinating quote that I've got from Henry Dimbleby's book where he says the somebody who ran a advertising agency for foods and supermarkets said, this is a bad look. We cannot be seen to profit from people's misery and ill health. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that as consumers we can do is say it's not acceptable for you to profit from misery yes. and ill health. Now, there's one other body that had a significant responsibility for feeding us throughout our history, and that's the church. And there's quite a lot of religion in your book. Jesus was well known for his eating habits. He instituted a meal as a remembrance of his life and death. And there's a hugely powerful emphasis in Christian ethics about feeding the hungry. So it's hardly a surprise to discover that the church has had a lot to do with feeding us over the centuries, initially through monasteries and then through outdoor relief and subsequently personal charity. This is very significant up until, I'm guessing it feels like the 19th century with the advent of the workhouse and then the 20th century with the welfare state. Is that a fair summary? I think probably the big change comes over the Reformation because with the Reformation, the centre of your moral universe ceases to be the church. Well, it certainly ceases to be the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church obviously has to create itself. And in that process, people's moral centre turns to be much more to do with the family and the individual. And obviously, you lose those kind of great big monastic communities. You lose this big idea that you have halls where lots of people come together and eat. And so I'd say that's probably the beginning of the biggest change. And the workhouses, we associate them with Victorian Britain and Dickens, industrial cities. There had been workhouses for centuries. The first poor law, Elizabethan poor law, in the very early 17th century, the old poor law, it's not working. There are too many poor people, essentially. Nobody knows Mm -hmm. what to do with them. Mm. And so you have in 1834, what's called the Poor Law Amendment Act. And that is what changes this concept of charity, formal charity, because before then, anybody can give charity. The church can give charity, individuals can give charity, and that doesn't change. But what changes is that the local authorities can no longer give charity in the home. And so you cannot just give somebody some blankets and some food and say, this is just to tide you over till times get better. That person has got to then go into the workhouse because you can only give people charity in the workhouse. And that's where you get this kind of appalling, horrible system. 
Well, the other thing that really changes there is the strings that are attached to receiving poor relief, because mm. I mean, there's never been no strings attached. But with the new poor law in the 1830s, there is a very rigid distinction, isn't there, between the deserving poor and the undeserving poor? Yes, yes, and again, that you can see that coming slightly earlier. You can see that happening after the plague in the 14th century, because before the plague, most people didn't move around very much. You couldn't leave your village. After the plague, people were on the move because whole villages disappeared. You couldn't live in your village. You had to move somewhere else or you might move to a city or a town or something. And then suddenly there were these people who nobody knew who they were. They might be strangers. And so that concept of feeding the stranger at your door, that very, very Christian concept of charity and hospitality, that begins to break down in those times. Um, And so the church continues to make individual charitable gestures and you get these things called doles you get charitable doles and somebody leaves some money to the church and every year the church has to give out some nuts or some bread and cheese or something hence the dole queue it's the dole queue yeah exactly although in those days it wasn't a queue it was a scramble you know that somebody (laughs) would the, the vicar would stand outside the vicarage and chuck some pie or something in the air and everybody would scramble for it I think the church begins to be seen less as the source of authority in terms of distribution and more as a place of individual and personal responsibility and conscience, really. Let's bring our story right up to date. I can't not ask about Brexit, I'm afraid, because (laughs) Brexit has been tied inextricably with the question of food and who feeds us. What impact has slash will Brexit have on the way we feed ourselves? So... We don't yet know completely. We stopped being self-sufficient a very, very long time ago. I think we started importing more corn than we grew ourselves in something like the late 18th century. And again, it goes back to this idea that we are becoming an industrial nation. We're beginning to make things and not grow things. And if you have an industrial nation, you have a poor urban population and they need food. And if you can't grow it enough yourself, which we couldn't, you import it. And so we import our corn. It becomes part of Britain's colonial image and ambitions. And we import sugar, a huge and huge amount of sugar mm. from the Caribbean. And that obviously has massive moral problems attached to it for for a very long time. We rely upon other countries to feed us. You began this conversation asking about the commons, and it seems extraordinary to me that we have this thing from the commons, we enclose the commons, and then we have this thing called the commonwealth. And we look to the commonwealth for a long time to feed us. We would expect to import all our food from Australia, the Dominions, but also India and Bangladesh. I think I'm right in saying we imported more food in the 1930s than we ever have subsequently. Yeah, just before the First World War and before the Second World War, both absolutely, yeah, kind of much more than 50%. And so we were very, very food insecure. And so that comes to your point about Brexit, that we are an importing nation. We have to get our food from somewhere. It either has to be Europe or it has to be the rest of the world or a combination of both. But it does mean you have to ask, what is the job of our government? One of the jobs of our government is national security. And that means defence, but it also means food security to a degree. And so there is a question, I suppose, that Brexit has particularly thrown up 
if we don't have trade deals with Europe and we're going to get bad trade deals with Australia and going to be hammered by Canada and America who want us to import all kinds of food that we don't particularly want to produce ourselves, Mm. then you have to ask how food secure are we as a nation? And the implicit answer to that question is not very secure, isn't it? Not very secure, no. And we import, I think it's about 50-50 actually. But you know, if you take away 50% of our food, that's a problem. We've talked a lot about who has the responsibility for feeding us. We've talked about ourselves, we've talked about cooperatives, we've talked about the commercial sector, the charitable sector, the state. That brings me back really to the key question that with which we began and also to the epigraphs for the book. You chose two from a House of Commons debate during COVID mm. um, in which one MP says it's the government's responsibility to ensure the children do not go hungry. And another MP who says that parents should take responsibility for this. And you return to this question right at the end and you give an answer that actually goes back to another hungry period in our national history, the the 1590s. So where ultimately would you say the responsibility lies in making sure we have good food in hard times, indeed, in any time? Well, I didn't know, which is why I wrote the book, in fact. And although I start with those Two politicians talking in that debate that Marcus Rashford inspires in the pandemic about whose responsibility is it to feed hungry kids. The idea for the book actually came from where you started, which was the enclosures. And I thought, oh, okay, if if people are having their whole domestic economy uprooted, thrown into the air, who takes responsibility for those people? And I realised that if that was a question for then, it was also a question stretching Mm. back forever, really, stretching back to the first time that we all sit down and have grow food together and eat together and coming right up to today and who takes responsibility not just for what we eat but for the quality of what we eat and that's the problems that we're facing today there is no shortage of food you know we have too much food in fact supermarkets throw away food or give it Mm. away to food banks but i think in some ways churchill gives the answer because He gives many answers. And he says in some speech, responsibility and power are completely commensurate with amount of power. So if you have a lot of power, you therefore have a lot of responsibility. If you are pretty powerless, then you can't demand that those people take responsibility. And Mm. so responsibility and agency are really tightly combined. So I came to the conclusion, and it's probably not a very fashionable thing to say, but as individuals, I do think we have responsibility to feed ourselves as well as we can, because we have responsibility to ourselves, our families, each other. So I think there is a degree of personal responsibility. And I think the government's role is to look at the whole food system and think, how can this food system work so that everybody makes the choices that they want to make and takes on the responsibility they are able to take on. The book is called Stuffed, A History of Good Food and Hard Times in Britain. Penn Vogler, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thank you so much. It was really interesting, really great conversation and questions. Thank you. Next week, I'll be speaking to Matt Goodwin about his book, Values, Voice and Virtue, The New British Politics. The elite graduate class have swung sharply left. And that really matters because they also tend to dominate the institutions. As they've moved left, they've taken the institutions with them. They've taken the BBC. They've taken the cultural institutions, the creative industries. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. 
Our team includes Daniel Turner, Fiona Hanscom and Chinny MacDonald. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find details of a special live event in London this November, in which we'll be talking about the coming age of the machine with Lord Robert Skidelsky. We hope to see you there. <laughs>